Welcome to episode one of South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. Much has been written about the South African Border War, which is also known as the Namibian War of Independence. While the fighting was ostensibly about Namibia, most of the significant battles were fought inside Angola. This conflict has almost been forgotten as the Cold War ebbed away and bygones were swept under the political carpet back home. Four years after the last shots were fired in that war, the African National Congress and the National Party negotiated a peaceful end to apartheid during the Congress for a Democratic South Africa, or CADESA. At that Congress, and afterwards, it was decided that a Truth and Reconciliation Commission should be set up to offer amnesty to all those who committed human rights violations during the armed struggle against apartheid, and that was on both sides, but only the incidents inside South Africa itself. This left out a significant part of the story of what happened between 1960 and 1987 beyond the borders of the country. Those events were quietly swept under the negotiation carpet. While this helped in some ways to reinforce the idea of a post-apartheid nation, it hindered closure for many of those involved. The South African border war was low-key most of the time and characterized by unconventional warfare. At times, South African Defence Force soldiers would be on foot searching for Swapo guerrillas and vice versa. Like any other non-conventional war, it is extremely frustrating for an organised army when it fights against an army that prefers subterfuge to submarines. Ironically, that's exactly what the Boers had done to the British during the Boer War, frustrating the organised army of the Empire as they darted about the felt, refusing to stand and fight when they could inflict guerrilla warfare on the English. But at other times, the South African border war battles were between motorised heavy vehicles with tanks, artillery, air bombardments and mechanised units rolling into attack each other using the latest military hardware. It was MiGs against the Mirage and a great testing ground for the Russians and the Americans. For some, that was a nightmare, for others, freedom. At times, youngsters from the suburbs of Pretoria or Durban were fighting experienced soldiers from Russia and Cuba. For South African vets, the territory would become known as NAM, as the type of warfare replicated the Americans' experience in Vietnam to some extent. It's ironic, then, that the country's name is Namibia. The most violent battles were the long-range strikes deep into Angolan territory, full-scale conventional warfare. But the road to these battles was long and inexorable. By the mid-20th century, the whole region was experiencing a heady rush of freedom in the middle of a Cold War. Countries in Africa were shaking off the shackles of colonialism. Russia, Cuba, Eastern and Western Europe, along with America, armed their allies in Southern Africa. On one side, the Southwest African People's Organization, the Angolan Army, FAPLA, backed by the Russians and Cuba, and on the other, the South African Defense Force with their ally, UNITA. The United States supported the SADF. Ironically, UNITA had initially been backed by China between 1966 and 1975 as it fought for the independence of Angola from the Portuguese, alongside the MPLA at first. Later, during the Angolan Civil War, UNITA was backed by South Africa and America when the Chinese withdrew their support after Chairman Mao kicked the bucket. Of course, the Angolans supported the Southwest African People's Organization and its armed wing, the People's Liberation Army of Namibia, or PLAN, which began its infiltration of Southwest Africa in the early 1960s. The entire border area was destabilized through this period, and boundaries on the map meant little to combatants. Hearts and minds campaigns were crucial in this conflict because, as we'll hear, no one escapes the South African border wars unsullied, and everyone in a war has blood on their hands. 
As a veteran called Harry reminded me the other day, most of those who fought the South African border wars are alive today. This story must be told because, like all things involving Africa, it has had much more impact on the world than first meets the eye. Civilians in Angola and Namibia who were caught in the middle are also still very much alive, and many are disfigured and disabled. Every now and again, a reminder of the Cold War detonates. Someone steps on a mine, still found in the sandy, loamy soil in Angola or Mozambique, each detonation bringing the past back into a village. Each generation of children has to be re-educated about what path is safe to walk. This border war was often fought inside Angola, but the conflict was about southwest Africa, or what is now Namibia. So let's first start by going over what had created conditions for war and peer more closely at the landscape upon which it would be fought. The region has been dry for as long as humans have walked upon that part of earth, and the Namib Desert is the oldest desert in the world. In fact, Namibia is the driest country in sub-Saharan Africa. Namib means vast place in the Nama language, thus its modern name, Namibia. And it is vast, bigger than Spain and Portugal combined. Namibia has been inhabited by the San, Damara and the Nama for thousands of years BC. Then, in the 14th century, Bantu people arrived during the expansion period as they moved southwards from Central Africa. It wasn't much later that the first Europeans arrived in 1485 when Portuguese navigator Diogo Tao explored part of southwest. A year later, in 1486, Bartolomeu Dias also reconnoitred the area, but he didn't claim the territory. They were far more interested in finding a way to the eastern Spice Islands with their great treasures. The next important date was 1883, when traders arrived in large numbers on board a ship by the name of Tilly, which landed in Luderitz Bay. Slowly but surely, an increasing number of German officials, settlers, workmen and soldiers set up their lives on this extremely hard land. Back home, the Germans were industrializing fast and determined to challenge the British Empire's hold on the world by the last third of the 1800s. This led to something we know as the Scramble for Africa, which gained impetus in the last quarter of the 19th century. It was at the Berlin Conference of 1884 where the European powers formulated the rules governing colonization and trade in Africa that set up a sudden surge of interest in the continent. The partitioning escalated the pressures Africans would feel as European nation-states queued up to colonize the vast continent. It was the age of imperialism. To emphasize what a shock this was for Africa, let me put it this way. In 1870, Europe controlled 10% of Africa. By 1914, or 40 years later, 90% of Africa was under European control, with only Ethiopia and Liberia still independent, and South Africa nominally so. Back in 1880, European nations needed ports to reinforce their trade with Asia, so they initially concentrated their power along African coastlines. Harbours in southwest like Balfour's Bay and even Swakopmund were considered useful, if not always used, as stop-off points on the way to Cape Town, owing to the nature of the Atlantic winds, which led to St. Helena being used more regularly than the southwest coast of Africa. Further south, the British governor in the Cape, William Palgrave, realized by the 1870s that the only natural deep-water harbor along the entire west coast for thousands of kilometers was Valfus Bay. Unfortunately, that was very close to Swakopmund, one of the smaller harbors of German interest. Palgrave knew this because he'd led a number of fact-finding missions to the region himself to see. So Palgrave annexed Walfus Bay to the Cape Province of British South Africa in 1878, and that's where the trouble really started. 
This odd arrangement was nothing new. The British controlled Gibraltar, after all. They were also about to take control of Hong Kong in the 1890s. While the Europeans were jostling for position back in southwest Africa, internal warfare between the Herero and other groups, including the Nama and the Orlam, the Griqua and the Basta, had destabilized the region. The Orlam, Griqua and Basta nations were Afrikaans or Dutch-speaking and ensconced in southwest already. They had been pushed north by the colonization of the Cape by the Dutch and then the English. After decades of war with the Damara, Nama and Herero people, the Urlam established a powerful semi-nomadic state in the area of modern Vintuk under their leader Jan Jonker Afrikaner. In 1868, the Bastas had pushed into southwest Africa from the Cape as they also moved away from the expansion of the Dutch and English. They were pastoralists and they needed space for their cattle and sheep. In 1872, they established a republic and parliament around the settlement called Rehoboth. Meanwhile, a local Herero chief called Maharero Kajamua was collecting reports about what the Germans and the British were up to across the sweep of southern Africa and knew these two European nations were not friendly towards each other. What further applied Maharero Kajamua's mind was that he was already engaged in a bitter war with the Urlam leader, Yanyonka Afrikaner, when he heard rumours of a large group of Trek Boers preparing to leave the Transvaal Boer Republic to invade his territory. Kajamua had heard the plan was to establish another Boer Republic on his doorstep, or worse, inside his territory itself. That meant fighting Yonka Afrikaner and the Boers simultaneously. These rumours were in fact correct, as the Dorsline trekkers were mobilising and their great migration was soon to begin, as we'll hear, but they were actually on their way to Angola. Maharera then began sending diplomatic missions south to the Parliament of the Cape of Good Hope in the 1870s with the premise that an enemy of the enemies could be his friend. British Governor Palgrave then dangled the all-important Cape promise of equal representation in the Cape Parliament to sweeten a possible deal. The Cape government commissioned their Governor Palgrave to investigate, as we've heard, and he then wanted to annex the entire dry, hard country to the north. When Palgrave returned to Cape Town, he recommended that Southwest Africa be incorporated into the Cape and its inhabitants be granted equal political rights. At this stage, he did not differentiate between white and black. He had already annexed Volfus Bay, so adding the entire country seemed to be the logical next step. This would have resulted in a new state, which would have seen the Cape and Southwest become a single entity. However, at that very moment, there was a breakdown in relations between the Cape government and the British imperial government, which then refused to ratify the annexation. While this diplomacy was going on, Southwest remained vulnerable to the ongoing internecine struggles. The local people conducted raiding and were constantly fighting amongst each other, which didn't help when they were all facing a surge of colonials. Arriving at precisely this point to compound their challenges were the Dorsland Trek Boers. These trekkers began heading to Southwest Africa in 1874 under the leadership of Gert Alberts. A number of different groups of farmers took different routes into the north, setting off from Rustenburg, Mariko and Pretoria. Their aim? To reach the Humpata Highlands of southwestern Angola. And that is a remarkable journey, traversing the vast arid areas of the Kalahari and some of the wildest land in the world, even now. They crossed Botswana and finally made it to northern southwest Africa, where they faced a second major challenge. Malaria. Those who survived the dreaded Anopheles made it across the Kaneni River at a place called Swatboy Drift, 
and arrived in Angola but were not very impressed. The Portuguese who controlled Angola, however, were very impressed and wanted more Boers in their country. This link between South Africa, Portugal and Angola would continue later during the border war with Portuguese speakers from Angola ending up fighting for the South African Defence Force. So, back in 1874, the Portuguese tried to convert the newly arrived Boers to Catholicism. They, after all, were Calvinist Protestants, so it didn't go down too well. Then the Portuguese made the fatal error of refusing to allow Afrikaans to be taught at the local schools. That was the last straw, and most of the Boers left southern Angola, with many heading directly south and into southwest across the Kaneni River. Others went to South Africa, and their descendants would return a hundred years later, when the South African border war began in earnest. But back in the 1880s, many of these Boer families didn't return to South Africa. Instead, they headed south and settled in the Otavi, Tsumeb and Grootfontein Triangle, as well as around Khobabas. The descendants of the Afrikaners who remained behind in Southwest Africa would eventually form an important intelligence and information source for the South African police and defence force when the border war began in the 1960s. By the 1880s, the territory was threatened with impending invasion and colonisation by Portugal, Britain and Germany. As the scramble for Africa took hold, several observant local leaders became aware that European colonisation of their territory was probably inevitable. You can't slow the tide of history, so eventually Namibia became a German colony in 1884 as Berlin sought to stop British encroachment. The formal name was born German South West Africa, Deutsch Südwestafrika. Africa. The Herero met the German authorities and verbal agreements were initiated. At that stage, the number of German colonials on the ground in southwest was tiny, a few thousand. What's more, Chief Kamaharero had negotiated a protection agreement with the British at the same time as a kind of insurance in case the Germans changed their minds. What Chief Kamaharero didn't know for sure was whether the British would honour the agreement. Of course, they didn't. So Chief Kamaharero also negotiated a formal Schutzvertrager, or Treaty of Protection, with the Germans. That was another worthless handshake, as we'll hear shortly. The Schutzvertrager was an agreement that was to be broken almost immediately. The relationship between German settlers and Herero went downhill pretty rapidly from this time onwards, as the competition over three main resources, water, land and cattle, became more violent. The Herero regarded themselves as free people, while the Germans thought of them as cheap labour. Worse, the Germans regarded the Herero as backward savages who deserved to be civilised or exterminated. The next steps were to be taken by the people who gave Namibia its name, however. In 1893 and 1894, the Nama and their legendary leader Hendrik Witboy tried to overthrow local German control. Then a European trader was murdered in the territory of the Kauas Nama around today's Leonardville, which is close to the Botswana border. The local Kaua Nama chief Andreas Lambert refused to hand over the men responsible for the murder. After being threatened, they then went on the offensive by raiding cattle across the Bechuana land border. The military governor of German Southwest Africa was Theodore Leutwein, who decided that it was time to make an example of Andreas Lambert of the Kaua Nama. While Leutwein's personal goal was to create colonialism without bloodshed, events would conspire against him. He named his policies the Leutwein system, which were a mixture of diplomacy, divide and rule, and military coercion. His relationship with indigenous Namakwa and Herero tribes 
was tenuous at best. Conversely, Leutwein was often criticized by German colonists who said he was too lenient on the local black people. So, in February 1894, Leutwein led 100 Schutztruppe, or imperial security troops, to the Kauanama lands, ostensibly to negotiate with Lambert. After Andreas Lambert refused to meet, Leutwein had him arrested. Then, somewhat one-sided negotiations took place, with Lambert in no position to refuse Leutwein's terms. The Kauanama leader agreed to recognize German authority and to return the cattle rustled from Bechuanaland. He also agreed to hand over his weapons. With that, Leutwein set him free in a magnanimous act, as Lambert said he would personally ensure the terms were met. Instead, Lambert took the opportunity to try and escape with the entire Kauanama tribe. Leutwein and his Schutztruppe hunted Lambert down again, and this time when he was arrested, he was executed. This was the first execution of a Namibian traditional leader by the German colonial forces, but not the last. Leutwein intended the execution to set an example to other clans and tribes and double as a warning. Negotiations then started with the Kauanama, who agreed to stop waging war and stealing cattle from the Bechuana people. Their weapons were confiscated along with their horses, and with that they immediately became easy prey for everyone else. Because the Kauas lost their power of self-defense, they were seen as an easy target by other groups in southwest, let alone the Germans, and eventually the entire tribe disappeared from history. Its members scattered into prisoners of war and forced labor camps and lost their entire territory, as one history records. The final nail in their coffin was another ill-advised Kaua uprising in 1896 called the Kaua Mbanjeru Rebellion. Theodore Leutwein was again called upon to impose authority. The rebellion was duly quelled. As the century turned through 1900, there were incidents and confrontations until the most destructive event in Southwest history took place. The Herero in the north, under the leadership of Maherero, the eldest son, decided creeping colonialism had to be stopped. The causes were numerous, land, water, expansion of settlers, which had accelerated at the turn of the century. You see, by 1904, more than 3,000 Germans had settled in Namibia, primarily on the high ground, which is better watered and cooler. This surge in arrivals took place over 20 years, a relatively short space of time. It caused tensions to rise. The Herero were herders, moving their cattle from one place to another, but inexorably they found their lands usurped by the Germans who began putting up fences or denying transit. This, of course, would not end well. The Herero had been assembling a sizable arsenal of weapons, and it was these they used on January 12, 1904, in the town of Okahanja in the north of the country, as they fought the Schutztruppe, the German imperial troops. Okahanja was also the seat of the Herero under paramount leader Samuel Maharero, the son of Maharero Kajamua. Like his father, Samuel was a man of action and felt that the time to chase the Germans out of southwest had arrived. There is much debate to this day about who fired first in the town of Okahanja that day, but very little argument about what happened next. By noon, Herero soldiers had laid siege to the German fort, and as fighting rippled outwards, civilians were targeted. Samuel Maharero issued rules of engagement which banned attacks on women and children, but of the 123 settlers who were killed in the next few weeks, four were women. The settlers naturally clamored for harsh revenge. That's when Berlin rejected Leutwein's initial suggestion of a negotiated peace. 
The colonial office there was particularly upset that the Herero defeated the Schutztruppe in an April 1904 attack and forced them to retreat. How embarrassing. Leutwein was then relieved of his command, and the man who was to be feared and loathed arrived, Lieutenant General Lothar von Trotter. He was a colonial veteran of the wars in both German East Africa and the Boxer Rebellion in China. The violence that he would unleash on the Herrera was literally biblical. The story includes a leader taking his persecuted tribe into the desert to escape the pharaoh, who in this case was von Trotter, and the persecuted were the Herrera. When von Trotter arrived in June 1904, he had no time to build any relationship with the local people, nor did he care to. He regarded them as savages who had to be taught a lesson. In the meantime, the Herrero had fled to a part of the Waterberg Plateau, which lies at the very edge of the Kalahari Desert in northeastern Namibia. They thought this was far enough away from the German supply lines from the coast, and they were probably safe from interference. So the Herero set themselves up on the British Bechuana land border, and their plan was to flee should Van Trotter show up. However, they failed to monitor Van Trotter's movements and underestimated the resourcefulness of the Germans. Using the lull in fighting, Van Trotter then encircled the Herero in their hiding place before they realized what was going on. As with everything involving Namibia, Van Trotter faced almost insurmountable challenges, dragging his heavy artillery that was to make all the difference, across the semi-desert. You must be impressed by his organizational prowess and his single-mindedness, despite the wickedness he was about to unleash. His plan, as he told his officers, was a single successful attack that would, in his words, annihilate these masses with a simultaneous blow. On the morning of August 11, 1904, von Trotter ordered his 1,500 men to attack the 40,000 Herrera, 5,000 of them were armed with muskets and some more modern weapons, but the Germans were kitted out in the latest military hardware, including artillery and machine guns. Van Trotter was right to be confident. The heavy barrage unleashed by his artillery drove the Herero to make a fateful decision, and they committed themselves to a suicidal charge. The German machine guns cut them down. Eventually, a weaker German flank on the southeast was exposed and the majority of the Herero managed to escape into the Kalahari through that gap. But their suffering had only just begun. British Bechuana land is a semi-desert and thousands of men, women and children died of thirst within a week. Of course, Van Trotter didn't stop at the border either. He pursued the Herero into the desert. When they surrendered, he had them executed. It appears that Samuel Maharero died around this point too. By October 1904, and after almost two months of fighting, Van Trotter pulled back his men, exhausted his supplies low. Patrols were then set up along the desert perimeter to capture Herrero trying to escape, and the orders were simple, shoot them all. Just to reinforce his solution, Van Trotter issued his infamous Vernachtensbefehl, or extermination order, on October 3rd, 1904, standing at a waterhole called Zumba Zovundimba. Part of the order read, Within the German boundaries, every Herero, whether found armed or unarmed, with or without cattle, will be shot. I shall not accept any more women and children. Even by the standards of the day, this order was unsettling to authorities back in Berlin. It was eventually rescinded two months later in early December 1904 by Emperor Kaiser Wilhelm II. So, in the place of the extermination order, von Trotter set up concentration camps. These had been used by the British to incarcerate the women and children of the Boers during the recent Boer War. The Germans thought this a valuable invention. These concentrations lager 
were built close to the largest towns and farms where the need for labor was greatest. Herero prisoners became slaves. Men, women and children were then rented out to local businesses or press-ganged into local infrastructure projects. Conditions were so severe that half of the prisoners who built these roads were dead within a year. Eventually, three-quarters of the entire Herero population was wiped out due to starvation and extermination. Meanwhile, in October 1904, the southern Nama communities also decided to rebel against the Germans while their Schutztruppe were busy with the Herero in the north. The Nama fate, however, mirrored that of the Herero. The Nama were thrown into concentration camps. The vast majority ended up on Shark Island in the harbour town of Luduritz, where 80% died. Eventually, half of the Nama people were wiped out. Around 10,000 died during this short, sharp campaign. More clashes continued with smaller groups fighting the colonizers, and by 1907, 100,000 Herero had died, along with 10,000 Nama and 1,749 Germans. For a country with a total population of 250,000, that was a catastrophe. It is one of the most effective genocides in history, and the first in a century that would be pockmarked by holocausts and ethnic cleansing. It is something the Herero and Nama in particular have never forgotten, and didn't bode well for the South Africans who were going to administer the territory, leading inevitably to the border war. With that thought, we must end for this episode. Next week, we'll hear how Germany lost the territory and how the Cold War caught fire in Southwest Africa. Please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com where you'll find a page dedicated to the South African Border Wars podcast. You can also contact me on Twitter at Des Latham or through my blog, desmondlatham.blog. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.